the Chinese character of challenge is, is the same as the opportunity. And I really believe that, you know, whenever there's a challenge, there's always an opportunity. You can decide whether to be paralyzed by fear or to be moved into action and work with everybody. And if people overcome that fear of the unknown and see the opportunity that lies ahead, there's nothing we cannot achieve. Welcome to Consensus in Conversation, a podcast where we speak with inspiring leaders, innovators, problem solvers, and job creators, people across the country who are making the world a better, more sustainable place, and making good money while they do it. I'm your host, Connor Gaughan, founder here at Consensus Digital Media. Today, I'm talking with Juliana Garreser, angel investor, head of an incubator, and head of innovation for Greentown Labs. From college in Spain to business school in London, an embassy in Singapore, and a private equity fund in the French Riviera, Juliana has lived the global life many only dream of. She's built a career focused on using the power of investing to make the world a better place, both for the planet and for people. My chat with Juliana touches on the intersection of climate tech, sustainability, entrepreneurship, and most importantly, impact. Juliana, thank you so much for being here. Welcome. I do want to start with your background because you have lived in some truly enviable places across the globe. I think that digital nomads of today, like they wish that they had your CV that they were living. So walk us through that, your background a little bit. Uh, sure. So I'm from Spain, so which is already a, a very good place. Uh, I'm from the Basque region that is very close to France uh, in the border, uh, Bilbao. And uh, I was lucky enough to go to French school, uh, and uh, you know I had to do my high school in in France, in the in the south part, so the the Basque region still, uh, because there was no French high school in in Bilbao. So I was uh, already going at a sort of boarding uh, high school, and I would go back to Spain back for for the weekend. And then I also did my last year of university in, in France, uh, close to to Brittany. And uh, that led me to be like very international. So my first job, I decided to apply for this role at the International Commission of the Embassy of Spain for trade. And uh, I got the position in Singapore. I was there for a year and a half. I liked it so much that I decided to stay there and I was lucky to be hired by Citigroup. They were looking for a person to lead their Latin American business for uh, technology and credit card systems. Um, they were migrating and, uh, you know, they were leading all that migration from Singapore. So I was able to travel all around Latin America with that. And then I ended up going to Spain and Greece. And then I ended up migrating also Japan, which was fascinating. After CD, I decided that I needed to have more impact that, you know, I didn't want to just be one piece on a very big corporation I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I decided I would do it in a very international way. So I did some research and the most international MBA that I found was uh, the London Business School. So I went to London and uh, I decided to pursue the entrepreneurship mayor. And um, I had the opportunity to do an exchange program with a high school of business in Berkeley. So I went there. And I was uh, able to go to Silicon Valley. And that's when I got really hooked by the whole entrepreneurial yeah. bug. 
right after my MBA or during my MBA, I was recruited by a very interesting uh, firm in the French Riviera that puts in contact uh, investors and entrepreneurs. And I ended up actually managing the angel network with whom I work the most, uh, the Sophia Business Angels. Sophia Antipolis is a a very big science park. And um, most of my angel investors over there were from all over the world. They had retired in the French Riviera or they were commuting from the French Riviera. So I ended up going to many of their countries to do deals with them or to set up an angel network uh, with them. So I went to Istanbul, to Chile, to Ireland, uh, and even to Spain to help create angel networks all over the world. And uh, 12 years ago, I moved to Houston. Uh, My husband uh, used to work for Shell in Europe. He got a nice promotion to come to Houston We were supposed to be here from three to four years, and it's been 12 years. We just became citizens last December. So, you know, we we really love Houston, and we're Houstonians already. That's awesome. I want to head back into your answer. Something really struck me, because I think I had the same moment. You said you realized that you, you wanted to have more impact. The great pivot that I think many of us have had or continue to have is there a, a moment or something that happened or something that sticks out in your mind that when you decided you needed to have more impact, that fulfillment was missing? Yeah, I think, you know, um, you realize that in big corporations, you know, sometimes it's, it's a lot about who takes the credit, you know, who is doing what. It's, it's about positioning yourself. And I found that was not reality, right? Suddenly you create your own bubble of your corporation and you don't feel like you're pushing the envelope enough. You you know, you have a cushy job. And, you know, I realized that I had this very entrepreneurial mindset. I think it may come from my family too. And, and I wanted to have more say and have like a closer hand to the impact I wanted to see. I mean, I knew that we were changing a lot of things with CD and the way, you know, businesses were impacted, but I didn't feel like the, the social aspect of it. And I always was looking for the right idea to develop. And I guess because I couldn't find that right idea, that's how I became an investor. Because that's when you start investing in a lot of cool ideas and helping a lot of companies. And and I think that's what I've been thriving at. Do you have any favorite deals that you remember from from that first, those early days of, of setting up Angel Networks? One that I thought went really well was Claranor. They were uh, using Pulse Light to clean bottles and they were sold to Coca-Cola. There were a few others like boardbookings.com that was interesting. Uh, and, uh, and I think, you know, was uh, was a pretty cool one. I mean, all the ones that did well and also the ones that did pretty badly, by the way, had a clean tech component. We were in the clean tech uh, investing or, or Climate Tech 1.0 investing. So there was uh, one called Sun Partner. They were extremely good. They, I think, raised around 70 million and they crashed. And even the president of France was uh, trying to rescue them. And, you know, they, they would have made it because I think they went too big, too broad. But, you know, you learn a lot. I'm curious if you think back to the rounds you were raising, the entrepreneurs you were dealing with and the investors you were dealing with in the in that first chapter. Was there any particular demographic group that, was most prominent? And were there any demographic groups that were missing? 
Well, my first angel group, right, um, was in, in Europe, as I mentioned. And the reason I was high was because um, the chairperson who was leading the group was a very strong woman. You know, she was my first mentor, Candace Johnson. They call her Satellite because she was at the founding board of uh, Astra Satellites. And she uh, empowered me so much. You know, she she asked me, what is your 10-year vision? What do you want to do? How can we get there? I told her that I wanted to run a fund, a VC. And she's like, okay, well, let's let's start working towards that. And, and actually, she was the first one who gave me an opportunity to run a small fund in France. So she was the American amidst a group of, you know, French people, but also Latin American and British. So I could see that being different was a good thing. And then, you know, I moved to the U.S. and uh, I started running the Houston Angel Network. And that's when suddenly everything shifted. And I realized that just by moving to the U.S., I had become a minority. All right. I'm Hispanic. So suddenly I was, uh, I felt Latinx. I felt also women had less of a say. A lot of people who want to put you there, like, you know, just admin, just do coffee, just do whatever you're told. But, you know, if you had to say, some people would like not appreciate it a lot. And then I started witnessing like interesting behaviors, let's put it that way, uh, that I didn't agree with. And I ended up leaving. But, you know, definitely uh, a lot of lessons learned there. And, and that's one of the reasons why I decided that the last part of my career will be about real legacy building. Yeah, I've read and have a bunch of friends who've worked actively to try to close the gender gap in venture capital, both on the entrepreneur side and as investors. I'm curious to hear about your experience, though, because you were part of the founding team at Portfolio. So walk us through how you ended up there. So um, when I moved to the U.S., I realized I didn't have any network in the U.S. So my network was mainly in Europe. Okay, I knew a couple of people in the U.S., but not, you know enough of a network to to really make the jump into the VC world in the U.S. So I uh, applied for this Coffin Fellows program. That is a program in leadership in VC. And they have a global network. So we are more than 400 fellows all over the world. And I thought, well, with Shell, if I have to move again within three years, I don't want to restart from scratch, right? So wherever I am, if I end up in Asia again or Africa, this network will help me. Right. So that's one of the reasons I did it. And, you know, we went through the two year program and at the end of the two year, you need to do uh, end of fellowship project. Right. And a lot of people do. They, they ask you to think very big about something that you're really passionate about. And, you know, also in terms of legacy and all that, some people write books, some people launch businesses as part of that program and, and the project. In my case, I was, you know thinking about something of like an international perspective, something like a global network of investors, all that. And suddenly, you know, I was procrastinated so much about it. You know, it was like something didn't, you know, it, I was not pushed to start the project. And I'm like, this this is something that, you know, I have to pay attention to. So I was doing the, the two-year program and during the program, I could still feel like little bro-like behaviors, you know, the men would still go for their tennis and their, you know, um, whiskey tasting and suddenly, you know, 
those would be the the things that you know women would like not feel like part of or not be consciously invited to and all these things so a few instances there and I thought like you know what um, even though they're trying their best there's still a huge gap and I started digging into that and uh, that's when I met Trish Costello Trish Costello is the founder of Portfolio she was the one who was the first CEO of the Kaufman Fellows Program she spun it out of the Kaufman Foundation she was working for the Kaufman Foundation she created the the program there and she spun it out you know we we met and and she told me I'm I'm about to launch Portfolio, this platform of funds that are going to be mainly led by women. Yeah, in this day and age, it's shocking to think that this was so unusual. What did you think? I thought it was such a cool thing, and I was already in my project studying the gender gap and in investing in how to bridge it. And I thought that for us, it would be very very difficult to change the VC mentality in Silicon Valley and other places and hire more women partners. So I thought we needed to go a level lower in angel investing where actually we can activate more women to take matters into their own hands. Because if we're waiting for someone else to change the world, we can still wait, right? See them wait. But in this case, with whatever capital you have available, if you start investing and getting trained and getting empowered into early stage investing, finally taking the matters into your own hands, we can change the markets because we make 80% of the purchase decisions anyway, but still there's plenty of products that we want to have that we don't find in the markets. Why? Because men invest in those and they don't feel there's a need for those. So that's what we've been doing with Portfolio. We've been creating the funds that women and minorities want to see. And more than anything, and not only we've been investing and having great returns, but also we've been empowering these people into investing, becoming investors, becoming leads of other funds, opening their own funds, opening up their own angel networks. So, you know, being the change they, they want to be in the world. Let's move from Portfolio to Greentown um, and talk a little bit about the current portfolio that you're building. First, let's just get the real quick summary of Greentown. What is it? Give us a little bit of the history. So Greentown Labs was created 11 years ago by four entrepreneurs from MIT that outgrew their prototyping lab at MIT. So they rented a basement in South Boston. Fast forward one year and 17 entrepreneurs were there. Uh, the four founders were like, okay, we never signed up for this. The landlord was going to kick them out because he was raising the prices. And that's when Emily Reichert, our CEO, met them. And she took over. Uh, she got a loan from the mayor of Somerville, very close to Harvard and MIT. And that's where they got the first building. And fast forward 10 years, and we have a campus of three buildings in Boston and Somerville. Uh, with 140,000 square feet. And we opened a year and a half ago a campus in Houston. And in Boston, we have around 200 companies that we're incubating. Uh, in Houston, after a year, we are at 70 companies. Total for the 11 years, we've incubated more than 600 companies that have raised around $2.5 billion and generated around 6,000 jobs. That's amazing. So I have to assume at this moment in time, and you referenced this a little bit, a big part of this is labor force, labor development. I'm curious to hear a little bit about how you guys are tackling the issue of the labor markets and, and training. And are you seeing a lot of these jobs start to 
pop up on job boards? And are you, how are you working with your partners to try to find, train, retrain new uh, talent for the future? When we came to Houston, we knew that there would be differences between the Boston ecosystem and, and the Houston one. And that the first one that was pretty obvious was this need from the workforce to get retrained and reskilled a little bit on, on energy 2.0, right? And, and they came to us as a, a convener, like to look for solutions and see how they could we could signpost them to the to the right directions. Of course, our companies, many of them are hiring quite a lot. So we felt that there was a need for us to help them find the best talent. So, you know, now at our greentownlabs.com website, the most visited page is the careers page where we have more than 100 job postings from our startups. Also, quite a lot of our partners, we have 90 uh, corporate partners are hiring a lot. And, you know, we also push those jobs uh, to our community. And then we're, we're trying to stimulate the conversation uh, and try to fill those gaps by creating job fairs, internship fairs, career days, and partnering with, um, you know, the, the institutions out there that are trying to, you know, train this workforce, or at least make sure that they get connected to to the right training. And, you know, we, we took on this because we felt like nobody, or at least, you know, only a few people were, were caring about this. Little by little, we're seeing more and more players come on, and we're always making sure that, you know, they, they get the most visibility as possible. So one of our startups, Ally Energy, is a platform for workforce development in the energy transition. So that's one. The Renewable Energy Alliance has been, you know, taking over a lot of training careers days that we have, you know, co-organized. The Greater Houston Partnership has this upskill program and they're working to make sure that there's a platform put together to be able to post, but also redirect people to the right trainings. So clean tech, climate tech, renewables, these are all incredibly hot sectors right now. And you, given your place in the world, have, you know, I'm sure quite a visionary perspective. So what does this, what does this all look like in 10 years or 20 years? Yeah, well, I'm a climate optimist. So I think, you know, 10 years from now, we're going to see a lot of climate tech unicorns. That's for sure. Uh, a lot of the companies that you see now are no longer going to be there. And, you know, they're going to be replaced by climate tech unicorns. Uh, I think there's going to be uh, a very interesting empowerment of the consumer sector. So my vision or my wish also would be that, you know, we have a lot more data as consumers on what, you know, how to consume electricity, how to become producers ourselves, how to attach it to the grid, uh, and how to lower our carbon footprint by knowing exactly what to consume and when to consume it, and also how to give back to the grid when, when needed. I hope that the markets are going to finally align also with the um, the carbon, so carbon trading and, and making sure that we account for, for carbon uh, no longer as an externality, but really as a, as a part of, of our decision-making process. 
And, uh, you know, I hope that we will also be very resilient as a community and we will have figured out how to withstand the impact of, you know, wildfires or flooding here in, in the Houston area so that we can, you know, live in a in a better way, but also in a more, like I would say, communal way. You know, I think there's a lot to do in, in agriculture where, you know, you can do things in a more network way instead of having to go through this big macro agriculture that, you know, has been very industrialized. Um, we hope that, you know, every school can can have their own little farm or, or greenhouse. And, and I think there's there's a way to to have food with without having to fly, you know, bananas from like thousands of miles away. Right. How do you think we can help bring others into that narrative? How do we get more people thinking this way and living their lives accordingly um, to be optimistic and to take that optimism and deploy it as action? The Chinese character of challenge is, is the same as the opportunity. And I really believe that, you know, whenever there's a challenge, there's always an opportunity. And, you know, you can decide whether to be paralyzed by fear or to be moved into action, right? And and, and work with, with everybody. So I think if we become action-oriented and stay positive, the opportunities are endless. And I really believe that if people overcome that fear of the unknown, and uh, see the opportunity that lies ahead, there's nothing we cannot achieve. And, and I think, you know, when you see what we've been able to overcome with COVID and, and the fact that we created a vaccine in a record time, uh, the fact that we are able to explore and go to the moon again or go to Mars, all these things are because we create this sense of urgency. And I think uh, one of the things that is finally changing for climate tech is that sense of urgency, right? And the fact that finally, it also looks like there's money to be made. Finally, everything is aligning the the, the financial case with, you know, the, the sustainability case, with the environmental case, with the equity case. So we are at a perfect storm and we need to take advantage of it. You mentioned the equity case. We haven't gotten a chance to talk about that yet. That's something that you... Um, are passionate about. I want to start that conversation with a personal question, which is, what kind of world do you want to leave for your kids? I want to make sure that my daughter has the same opportunities as my son. And being realistic now is not the case. So uh, I know that she's going to have to fight harder. I know that she's going to have to demonstrate more. And even then, uh, she might not be given the same opportunities. So that's something that I care very deeply about. And I want to make sure that I leave her with the tools so that she can navigate this world, right? Uh, by becoming an investor and make, maybe, you know, making sure that she, she gathers some, some wealth, but also some interesting findings also by, by doing that. And uh, knowing that maybe, you know, uh, if uh, the corporate world is still not ready for for equity um, hopefully it will because you know I'm investing a lot in companies uh, around DEI and bridging the the wealth gap and, and the gender gap but if we don't get there you know maybe entrepreneurship is, is the route and maybe I need to stimulate that uh, for for her too uh, but definitely um, I, I think it's, it's about setting expectation right you know and 
And a lot of it is through education. I think STEM education is key. There's a lot of bias in education too. I think um, boys are much more encouraged into going into STEM than girls are. Boys in general are much more encouraged to fail than girls are. So working on the self-confidence, I think there's also this thing about being quiet and nice and smile that, uh, you know, hinders women into being outspoken. Being ambitious as a woman is not well perceived. So there's there's a lot of bias we need to work against. And uh, I want to make sure that my girl is as equipped as possible with all the tools she's going to need to start, you know, like race that, you know, where, where she's not going to have a head start for sure. She's she's going to have like, a, you know, to, to compete in unfair conditions. So thank you for that. I think that'll resonate with a lot of people. Um, I want to make sure you have an opportunity to get any message out there that you in Greentown think is important. And so um, two questions to that. And one, I, I'm curious, what are you most excited about for the near-term future? So I'm very excited that, you know, I see a lot of the sectors that are important to Houston converging. I used to work at the Texas Medical Center. There was a lot of biomedical companies that I thought were very interesting. And some of them are actually pivoting to carbon capture and carbon to value. So uh, one of the companies, Invita Factory, is, is doing that, is genetically modifying microbes to capture carbon and transform it into bioethylene. So I think, you know, the chemistry, the gene chemistry, the, the bio... Um, where we really excel in Houston could be very interesting for, for us to try to find solutions not only to carbon capture and sequester it, because that is like, you know, still putting a, a problem under the rug, but actually how you transforming and create value out of it. Something that I'm very passionate about. I'm also very passionate about changing the finance world, bringing more money bringing more philanthropy money to climate tech and make sure that, you know, this value of death that our Greentown Labs companies have to endure gets easier. Uh, so that's something that, you know, I'm working on with several groups on capital formation, but also with banks trying to figure out what's what's next for, for the finance world. So I'm, I'm very interested in that. And I'm also very interested in, you know, climate Solving climate change is, is a global affair. So I'm very interested about the connectivity, right? I think by merging the Boston and the Houston ecosystem, we're getting plenty of interesting synergies. You know, the fact that many customers from our Boston companies are in Houston, many investors are in Boston. There's a very nice synergy there. Uh, I can't wait to add more cities to the mix and really make this a networked effort because I don't think we're going to solve climate change through any city. Uh, it's going to be more like a collaboration on a global basis. So it's, it's not only about what's what's next for the U.S., it's what's next for the world and how we can collaborate uh, even more closely. Yeah, it's clear from our conversation today that you're really building a legacy focused on equality and inclusivity. As we wrap up, I want to extend this idea a little bit, though. How can this be an asset to businesses and to the world as we seek to tackle some of the big challenges ahead? So I think it's the inclusion part. You know, I think uh, we came to Houston because Houston are great at problem solving. 
you know, we solve, like we're trying to solve cancer. We're trying to go to space We're we're trying to, to do amazing things. And I think we are these problem solvers because we are extremely diverse. So we put all great minds from many walks of, of the world together. And I think we are the kind of model of working as a diverse group that everybody should strive to. So we want to be the example on how to work with different mentalities, different motivations, different races, different genders, different walks of life. And that equity is is key. Uh, inclusion is, is key. And we, we're trying to, all the bias is still there, trying to shed a light on all of this and trying to make sure that we solve climate change without forgetting a part of the population, but making sure that they are also part of the solution. Awesome. Thank you so much for this. I had a great time. Thank you so much for having me. Big thanks to Juliana for an interesting conversation. Consensus in Conversations hosted by me, Connor Gaughan. The episode was produced by our very own Will Gatchell and Chandler Bronsted. Executive produced by me with editing from Reasonable Volume. Special thanks to Consensus Creative Director Kate Tucker. See you next week and don't forget to rate us and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you.